Hi, I'm Tzemach, and my guest today is again Sholem Aleichem. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So we had a bit of a interruption and a few things that left unspoken to. And why don't we start with that? Good. So what do you want to talk about today? Well, I, th- I thought um, it may be a good idea to speak about um, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Joseph Eichnerson. Um, Excellent. Know, Important subject. Okay. I agree. Because it, you know, it occurred to me that sort of American idea, it, actually the break with the Europe and the break with what happened in Russia, it's sort of American tradition because America was founded on the breakup with Europe. Good point. Yeah, yes. So it's not. And, and we find we find ourselves, I, I find myself more and more alienated from people around me. And, uh, you know, you, you, f- you think romantically about the time of the past as something which has people that you perhaps relate to a little better. I've, why, why don't I, I, I just, I just like, I, I can't talk about this. Why don't I turn over to you? Well, I, I think you mentioned a few interesting points. So let's see, before we talk about the riots, although it is part and parcel of it, um, your point about alienation from the past or, uh, or America, that is, I think, very well taken. Um, for those of us, and, and includes you and I, who who in who see in Lubavitch or sought in Lubavitch, that's a better word in the past tense, sought in Lubavitch, and I'm speaking here more for myself because I'm not hundred percent sure, you know, your your views on this. Um, who sought in Lubavitch a connection to their past, um, a connection to our ancestors and the connection to European Jewry, um, you know, the last 30 or 40 years have shown that that we're barking up the wrong tree, as they say. So um, if a person is seeking his European past, um, that person uh, should not join the Young Israel or a... Uh, modern Orthodox synagogue, those are very American creations. Uh, so the person is seeking his European past, and, and there are such people, there are many such people, as a matter of fact, since the late 1960s, there are many such American young people who are who are seeking to connect to their grandfathers and great-grandfathers, at least the way, uh, uh, you know, they were told their great-grandfathers were. Um, and many of them sought it through Lubavitch because on an outward form, Lubavitch claimed to be the old Judaism, you know, people with beards, people uh, with herring and uh, drinking, people, uh, you know, observant of Jewish law, uh, people wearing, uh, you know, 
costume of Eastern Europe. So in an outward form, I think a lot of young people joined Lubavitch because of that. Most of them didn't know what Europe was or have any idea at all. So many of them probably stayed. Even Many of them stayed in, in Lubavitch, even though Lubavitch, in my opinion, has nothing to do with Eastern Europe. But for those of us who, who did have some sort of ideas about what Eastern Europe was about and Jewish life in Eastern Europe was about, um, Lubavitch was a tremendous disappointment because at least to me, it seems that Rabbi Schneerson and his devotees and his aides were on a fast path to become Americans. English slowly replaced Yiddish as the, uh, uh, shall I call it the lingua franca, the, the, the language of Lubavitch. Uh, and as a secondary language, it was Hebrew. And, and as a tertiary language, it was maybe French. Yiddish fell, fell someplace at the bottom of the pail. Um, and in general, the, the, the pathways of Lubavitch, the mental pathways of Lubavitch became American, uh, both in terms of their pragmatism and the utilitarian outlook of Lubavitch, which is something Eastern European Jews were not pragmatic and they were not utilitarian. And uh, pra pragmatism, as uh, I recall from college, Daniel Burstein uh, wrote a whole essay about this. Pragmatism was really the what America was all about. You can do it. It's a can-do country. Um, and that's what Lubavitch is all about, can-do. Uh, so for people like myself, you know, I've been tremendously disappointed. Now I'm speaking emotionally rather than uh, intellectually. I was tremendously disappointed, disappointed because I don't see anything in Lubavitch that, that connects me with Eastern Europe. I mean, uh, their culinary tastes are not only American, but are cutting edge American. Uh, as I said before, the language is English. Um, there, there's nothing, there's nothing Heimish, if I can use the, the way the Hungarians say it. There's nothing Hamish. I'll say Hamish. There's nothing Hamish about Lubavitch. Absolutely zero. There's nothing Hamish. That so some guy will call me up and say, oh, he met this Hussit in Crown Heights. Sure, there still are probably a few individuals, and even perhaps a few younger people who've uh, gotten Hamishkeit from their parents and grandparents. I, I don't doubt it. But the movement as a whole is very American, very American. Uh, even the dress has shifted over. Uh, chinos, uh, polo shirts, uh, you know, these are things that, you know, I'm not fighting because I'm not on the right wing of, uh, of Judaism. Uh, but still, for a Hasidic movement, uh, in my time when I was growing up, the Lubavitchers in my hometown were the gold standard of religiosity. Today, I wouldn't say that anymore. Today, when someone tells me he's a Lubavitch Chassid, I'm not sure that that means he's observant. It could mean anything. It just means, like I always say, uh, that that person has pledged allegiance to the Lubavitch Rebbe and that he donates money to Lubavitch. That, that's all it means. It, it means nothing beyond that because there are people in Lubavitch who are religious, there are people who are not religious, there are people in between. There's something now called Lubavitch culture. In many ways, uh, Lubavitch 
has um, not consciously but unconsciously adopted Mordecai Kaplan's view of Judaism as a civilization. Lubavitch's views Chabad as a civilization is a cultural thing. You know, it's a cultural thing. It has nothing to do with uh, with religion or with Hasidus. It's a cultural thing. It's you know you. And they have their own culture. They've created their own culture. And why will I not go into explain what their culture is? You know why? Because I don't know what their culture is. And I, I just don't know. I haven't been part of it for the last 40 years. And I don't know what it is that these new young people uh, <coughs> from France, from Morocco, from Hotzeplatz, Chandrikovka, you know, what they've created. I don't know, but they have created a culture of good food, of drinking. You know, Crown Heights is the only Orthodox neighborhood, Stan uh, you know, places like Stanford Hill, or Golders Green, uh, uh, that has a bar. On Kingston Avenue, there's a bar. I mean, I can only imagine what um of previous generations would think about uh, a bar, a shank. A Hasidic Yashenk, never heard about it. In all the Lakute de Burm and the Zechreinus and the Freyrika Rebbe, I never heard of a Hasidic Yashenk. But now we have a Hasidic Yashenk. They've created their own culture, and the culture has nothing to do with Eastern Europe. So, and I'll just add one last thing. Um, so I'm alienated. I'm alienated. It means not, it means, I mean, the, the, I, I'll admit that the uh, Rabbi Schneerson himself was the last, um, the last thing that kept me interested in Lubavitch, because after all, you know, he was the son of the sixth Lubavitch Rebbe, he was a Schneerson. After all, you know, he himself represented uh, um, uh, the continuity, so to speak. But today he's only a mascot for uh, uh, people who I don't even know who they are. I have no, and maybe many of them themselves have no idea what they are and who they are and what they believe in, but it's sort of taken on a life of its own. Uh, now I'll just say what I wanted to say. The last thing, Sa having said all of that, I can only compare Lubavitch with any other Hasidic movement. You take your choice: Bells, Babov, Satmar. Um, you take your choice. You know, Gear. Uh, these movements are dedicated to retaining their Eastern European uh, roots, more or less. I mean, you can't take anything and put it in a freezer. I mean, you can't take Polish or Galiciano Jewish culture and put it in a freezer and expect it to come out 60 years later the same way it was in Chavesu uh, and Torna or in uh, Krakow 60 years later. Of course, there are changes. But nevertheless, these movements are dedicated in terms of uh, dress, in terms of uh, food, in terms of mentality, which is most important of all, in terms of the language. I mean, Lubavitchers, like other Orthodox Jews, like to say that Jews were, since we're rapidly approaching Pesach, that Jews were redeemed from Egypt because they didn't change their clothing, they didn't change their names, and they didn't change their language. So the, the clothing they've changed, the uh, language they've changed. So far, they haven't called themselves Brian, or uh, or whatever a good uh, or uh, you know whatever a good name is. They haven't done it yet. I'll give them I'll give them some credit for that. Uh, and you know I believe it's in the Mechilta or someplace. Uh, a fourth 
reason is added, uh, this is obviously homiletics, a fourth reason is added that the Jews deserve to be redeemed for Egypt, and that is that they didn't change Jewish food. And uh, Lubavitch has completely changed. And these other groups, you know, uh, whatever, you take, you, you'll take it, you know, Munkach, Stoll, and Carlin, they do their best to uh, retain the Eastern European mindset. Um, you know, some groups have very little, um, very little material to work with. I mean, I don't know much about Stolen Carlin, but Stolen Carlin has had very little material in terms of original members of the group from White Russia and Northern Ukraine, Volin. So uh, whatever they've done, they've done, you know, and they have changed a bit because there are very few people. And the same is true with some other groups. I mean, uh, but those groups that did have manpower to work with, like Bells and Babov and uh, Datmar and Vishnitz, you know, these groups have really retained. I mean, the, the Vishnitsa grandfather who came to America in 1950 is not much different in his mindset than the Vishnitsa Anikol in America, you know, in 2030. Of course, there are changes. Of course, people will tell me this and that. No, I'm, I'm not denying that. But their dedication still is to retaining their Eastern European mindset. So for myself, and for myself, I sometimes feel closer to the other Hasidic groups. Uh, they have Yiddish, they have an Eastern European sense of humor, which uh, is well described by Dr. Weiss Halivni in his memoir. Um, Lubavitch doesn't have any of this. Lubavitch is a, a group that is, wants to become American, at the same time, does not want to go to college, does not want to deal with American high culture, and I understand why, because if they admit that America has a real culture, and I think it does, and friends of mine, of course, tell me that, you know, woke culture is uh, taking over America, but, you know, I, I am a conservative myself, but I still believe America has a serious culture. You know, people who want to study in college can study. Uh, there is serious music, there's serious art, there's uh, whatever it is that's culture. And Lubavitch doesn't want to admit that there is high culture. So a group like Lubavitch for the last 60 years has been telling us that secular Jews in America, their kids use drugs, drink alcohol, have indiscriminate sex. Well, you know, if that is all true, how come all these teenagers of the late 60s are now brain surgeons, neurosurgeons, top flight lawyers, professors, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, does that jive? Does it jive that a person really was bombed out on LSD and 30 years later, he's one of the leading neurosurgeons in the United States that Lubavitch or Hasidim themselves need to consult? No, it doesn't jive because they were lying all along. There were Jewish kids, just like there were Gentile kids who were involved in drugs and were involved in indiscriminate sex and were involved in alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the vast majority of Jewish kids from <clears throat> secular Jewish homes or conservative reform Jewish homes, uh, you know, were, I'm not saying they were conservative, but, you know, they weren't exactly these orgiastic lifestyle that Lubavitch pretend, but Lubavitch had to pretend that that was what they were into because that was their drawing card. But now that's Eiskishpil too, if I can use the Yiddish word, because if anyone's into um, 
some of these things I just mentioned, it is the, some of the teenagers of, of Shabbat. The Shabbat people themselves are, are uh, clearly using drugs, uh, teenagers, clearly uh, involved in alcoholism. Uh, I don't know what else they're involved in, but uh, I can only uh, guess, and I'm not saying all of them are, but clearly there are many. Uh, you know, in the town that I live in, there's a Lubavitcher High School, and I personally have seen Lubavitcher in some black neighborhood. I personally have seen Lubavitcher teenagers buying drugs on the street. Uh, and now with uh, legalization of, of marijuana in uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, I suspect that Lubavitch will have a major problem on its hands uh, with a lot of its guys smoking dope and justifying it by saying that if, you know, people like, uh, I'm just using him as a name, people like Mendel Futterfass could drink vodka, well, we can take a toke. So, um, and you know, maybe they've got a point. I don't know. All I'm just saying is that this is not Eastern European Judaism. Well, it goes beyond that. It's a certain kind of introspective thinking and you mentioned alienation. And uh, a sort of kind of introspective thinking is impossible because even the people who are buying into system are buying in into certain um, I don't know the correct word. I know the outcome of it. It's, it's, it's impossible to talk to them. Sometimes it takes years to deprogram this person. But as it is, it is, it is alienation, alienation. And I don't mean maybe what was also modern American culture is very, with social media, it's, it's very crazy. I don't know. Well, maybe maybe it's a good time to skip to Rayats, who initiated this break with with old culture. Can I just interrupt for a moment um, yes. and build upon what you so um, accurately pointed out? Lubavitch is the only Hasidic group that is. Ruvo Kehulo, most of their activities and their social activities are on the social media. I mean, what's this? I mean, it's a movement where on an individual basis, Facebook, I don't know any of this stuff because I'm a person of a different age. And the movement itself, the institutional movement, is basically on social media, on the internet. What is this? And and I don't understand it. I mean, uh, you know, I just don't understand it. And as far as, you know, America, you know, I, I you know, I know a little about American history, but I'm, I don't know much about intellectual American history. Um, America doesn't seem to have produced any great thinkers. I mean, I, you know, if there are people out there who are, um, you know, intellectual historians, you know, they couldn't correct me. But I just don't can't think of any 
you know, they're obviously academic thinkers, people in, 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 in the walls of academia who are recognized as thinkers, but are there many public intellectuals in America? I, I don't know, maybe there are a few. And part of it is because of the pragmatic culture of America, it's a can-do culture. In America, it's, the culture is can-do. It's to get up, get off the ground and do it, not to think about it. Um, thinking is not an important part of the United States. Like, um, you know, none of our presidents, maybe with the exception of Woodrow Wilson, maybe Thomas Jefferson, I don't know, uh, were thinkers. I mean, our presidents are, are characters. Uh, I mean, Trump is just an example, but he's not the only example. I mean, Biden is a thinker. I'm not sure Biden has a brain cell. Um, uh, John F. Kennedy was a thinker. I very much doubt, and most people agree, that he did not write his book, Profiles and Courage. It was ghostwritten. And even if he did, it's not intellectual uh, work. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, strangely enough, in South America and Latin America, there are many political leaders who are um, intellectuals. <laughs> you know, I'm laughing, but it's true. I mean, I wouldn't trade the American political system for the Latin American system, but countries like Peru and even a crazy place like Nicaragua, uh, what's his name? Um, there were two brothers, Catholic priests, Ernesto Cardinal and his brother, whose first name I can't remember, who were well-known poets, serious poets, not just uh, scribblers who were a minister of culture and minister of something else in the Sandinista government. And, and this is true in, in, in other countries um, because the can-do pragmatism is not overwhelming. And in Europe, I'm sure what I'm saying is true. I mean, uh, I mean, again, I'm not a British historian, but I imagine that people like Disraeli and Gladstone were head and shoulders um, more intellectual than uh, their American counterparts, uh, Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison. Um, so I'm getting lost in American history. Well, as listen, said. as long as, as I blogged, I, I always did sort of, if you don't have anything new to say, don't say it. And it seemed to be that culture of... Uh, selfies and always cameras pointing at you uh, and regurgitating the ideas. And uh, that also affects this, this particular movement. Yeah. The outcome is, 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 a linear, is, is that, well, I, I say I close this blog because there's nobody to comment but there's no there's you nobody know, nobody can comment you know uh, and um, you know I, I'm going to sound like a Lubavitcher myself for a minute that I, I just don't believe that most people can do more than one thing at, at a time and since the Rebbe clearly wanted to keep his followers busy <laughs> with new mitzvahim constantly, with new ideas constantly. It's like, uh, what did they call it in the 1950s? Planned obsolescence. The Rebbe was a big believer in planned obsolescence. He created mitzvah one, 
six months later, you created Mr. Two, because Mr. One now is obsolete. It had gone all the way it can and finished. But you can't have a movement where you keep on trying to keep people busy, especially teenagers and young people, and even older people. You keep them busy running after people with fill-in, running after people here, just running and running. And you know what? I have never, and before I say this, I, I will say that I, I, I have participated in multiple Lubavitcher events. I've never seen a Lubavitcher chassid shut up for one minute and think about what he what he's talking about, and think about himself, and think about anything. They're just talking. They're on auto. They're on. They're on automatic. You know, they're automatic, and they're running around. They're running around in their brains, and they're running around more likely outside of their brains. And the Rebbe didn't want to give anyone any time to think, and that's why you know when the Rebbe went up to heaven, there wasn't a single person left in Lubavitch who we knew, and I stress who we knew, who uh, was recognized as anything. Yeah, you had a, a person in Crown Heights who now uh, one person is trying to build up as the greatest genius of the last uh, hundred years. Yeah, he was an absent-minded professor who regurgitated uh, the Rebbe Sichas. And if he didn't like what the Rebbe said, he, created, he recreated the Rebbe Sichas. This is the best they could do. But did the Rebbe create people who who thought, who who um, were independent thinkers? No, not at all. He just wanted people to run around and keep them busy, 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 busy. That's that was the main thing that I, I see in Lubavitch and that I saw in Lubavitch. Busy. No, I no time for contemplation, for meditation, for thinking. Oh well. <clears throat> Maybe we'll we'll skip to rayats because okay. the the present is too depressing to to speak about the present. Mm-hmm. So we might as well speak about the future or the well, or the past. The present is depressing, but it's important, at least for myself, to recognize what it is that the present is is real. It's not a um, you know. It's not an exception. This is it. This is what Lubavitch is. It's it's just a, uh, you know, it is what it is. You know, uh, <clears throat> I'd have much more respect for them if some guy in Lubavitch got up and said, you know, we all need to go to college. We all need to earn an honest living. Uh, we're going to become modern and finished. You know, instead, I know, but David, listen, I- listen. The, the other aspect of it is that, of course, since they are in business of making money, they are orienting themselves towards power. And orienting themselves towards power is means aligning themselves often and as much with forces of evil as, as American political culture split and uh, the sort of culture of wokeness, culture of left-wing domination, uh, it it is uh, so well, Lubavitch Chabad by default aligning themselves with those forces, just like Lubavitch in Russia is aligning themselves with Putin. So they are aligning themselves with forces of evil in every country they are. Well, you know, 
I hear what you're saying. I'll say it a little bit different, that um, Eisenhower's Secretary of Commerce, I believe his name was Wilson, said that the business of America is business. Now, Lubavitch has adopted that. The business of Lubavitch is business. It's business. So just like the American corporate world for years was the backbone of the Republican Party, but since uh, <clears throat> blacks and other youth-oriented groups in America are powerful um, consumer groups, suddenly the business world of America, the corporate world, has now become woke. And that's a fact. They've become woke. Why? Because the business of America is business. It doesn't matter to them whether they'll become woke. They just need the bottom line, literally the, the, the bottom line, profits. And the same thing is true with Lubavitch. It doesn't matter what they're selling. So, so the bottom line is profit. So, so one Lubavitcher walks around talking about debukim and golems. Another Lubavitcher talks about studying Zohar. These are things that classical Lubavitch and even their last leader had no affinity to and did not talk about. But if the guys out there and the gals are interested in debukim, will sell Dubukin. If they're interested in the Kabbalah Center is successful in studying Zohar, we'll sell Zohar. If the if this thing is interested in that, we'll sell that. You know, for years the Lubavitcher Rebbe was well known that he supported a hard line in Israel vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the Arabs and in regards to the West, uh, the so-called West Bank. Uh, but you know, when, uh, a number of years ago, and uh, uh, before one election. Uh, the New York Times had an article saying that uh, Mr. Gutnick um, was supporting uh, Netanyahu. Krinsky uh, issued a um, uh, disclaimer, which was published in the New York Times, that Lubavitch doesn't take any uh, positions. So can I extrapolate from that that Lubavitch supports merits? Is that what Krinsky's telling me? That Lubavitch, by not supporting Bibi, you're supporting merits. That I, that I truly believe in. Uh, if you don't support Bibi, you're supporting a Victor Lieberman, or you're supporting, and he's he's right wing. But uh, uh, so you know, Lubavitch will do anything for the buck, and for what you just said, for power. It doesn't matter. Putin, Schmutin, anything. If Putin is ousted and they appoint uh, 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 the new leader in Russia is is a Democrat. Fine. We're the biggest supporters of Democrats in the world. If the new leader of Russia is, a, a, you know, as my parents would say, a Chigainer, a gypsy, we're, we're, we're there. We're there. You know, uh, they, they have no... Well, they, they, the, the bottom line is that, uh, look, I, I sort of feel uncomfortable um, speaking about Chabad because I, I, for myself, decided it's the forces of evil. And, uh, you know, what's there to say? You know, we're not, we're not going to change any opinions, but well, by, by saying, like, what, what's, it's, it's a reality. It's, it's a reality like a stone. Yeah. I, it's I'll the just, forces I'm, of evil. Well, I, I'll say in, this, in every that... place, in, in America, in Russia, they... They they camouflage themselves as a religion that's supposed to appeal to moral values, but in reality they appeal to power and money, and that's all. 
And but the byproduct, what I, what I'm what I'm interested in, is that that they really, really nobody to talk to in Chabad. I mean, it's it's not a single person who can hold a conversation of his own opinions and who is not colored by years of 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 propaganda. Well, let me ask you a question. You know this better than I do. Was there anyone in the Soviet Union in the 1970s who you could talk to? Uh, yes, yes. I think, uh, listen, I tell you a secret. I, when I left Russia, I felt I, I made a big mistake because uh, the kind of environment and the kind of people who have been in Moscow, I, and I, I didn't find them here. Well, I had I, I had different I had different dreams, but the reality was quite different. And, and you, know, you know, listen, I I think that even take anybody who who is from Russia, take Zalman Schneerson. I I think I can find a common ground with him with that person because of our common experience in Russia. But I I I don't I don't find a common ground with anybody. How can you find a ground with the Cholent? I mean, now our Jewish culinary experts are making a big deal of Cholent. But, you know, Cholent is Cholent. It's some beans, it's some potatoes, it's a piece of meat, it's a piece of drek. Excuse me for saying, talking this way. And Lubavitch is a Cholent. It's not a culture. A culture needs a unifying factor. I'm not a social historian, but a culture needs something unified. And when you have a movement with tens of thousands of Moroccan Jews, with tens of thousands of, of people, Americans who know nothing about Judaism, who've been influenced by Jews for Jesus and by Buddhism, and when you have thousands of people who have nothing, who knows where they're from? This is not a culture. This is a Cholin pot. You're talking about Zalman Schneerson. You're talking about a purist. Yes, and I'm talking about that too. But that's not it, because the Rebbe was determined to destroy Klimovich, to destroy Neville, to destroy all of us. He laughed at it. He wanted a, a universalist movement with no, no pragmatic. The religion of Lubavitch, the ideology is pragmatism. It's not what you're talking about, a culture, Zalman Schneerson, there were other uh, you know, from Russia. Yeah, that was a culture. That was a culture. You know, I, I, I'm not I'm not saying that I was thoroughly familiar with that culture. To a certain extent, I was because my my parents are from white Russia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although they did not share the communist experience. I will say that. Uh, but. What culture is there? This guy in Anafabrengan sings a French national anthem. Another guy sings a national anthem from, from Liberia. Uh, another Lubavitch. I mean, this is not a culture. This is nonsense. And, you know, as, as ridiculous as the melting pot theory may now be, and I don't think it was ever that ridiculous personally, um, Lubavitch never decided to have a melting pot. Lubavitch is just, uh, you know, you threw all these people in and, uh, you know, whatever happens, happens, you know. You know, so today you walk into Crown Heights, uh, this guy, uh, French, this guy, this, this guy's that. I mean, you know, 
The only thing, Lubavitch is willing to do anything. They're willing to do anything, and I won't, I won't insult people by saying what it is. They're willing to, one thing they're not willing to try. What is that one thing? Back to basics, becoming part of the Jewish people. They're not willing to try that because their identity is of being different. That's what they're getting their, their you know, I, want, I don't want to say anything bad, but that's what they're really going for, being different. Being, and that's why a lot of people joined Lubavitch. They wanted, they liked being different. Just like hippies had a counterculture, Lubavitch was offering a counterculture for the same people. It's counterculture. We, we talk different, we think different, we have a guru. No, 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 no. It's 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 a counterculture that might appear to be counterculture, but it's the highest form of conformism. Uh, Absolutely. It, yeah. So it's 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 on the surface, it's counterculture. But you yeah. you 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 dig a little deeper, and it's all about conformism. You're right, but you know the people who join Lubavitch by your your own admission, you just said. They don't dig deeper. They're very simple-minded people, even if they have 17,000 college degrees. By joining Lubavitch, basically you've mortgaged your brain. Uh, you've, you've gone to a pawn shop on 770 and you've mortgaged your brain to, to some idiots, to third-rate idiots who now have your brain in the pawn shop. So these people don't think what you're, as you're saying, you think about it because you're, uh, you know, you have a brain. But the Lubavitch, Alice Lubavitcher doesn't do. Alice Lubavitcher thinks, you know, we're not like those guys in the Young Israel. We're really from. We're Lubavitch. I daven the Sahari. I have two pairs of tefillin. You know, of course you're right. The the the, the ultimate in conformance. But that's not the way they they don't think about it that way. In their minds, they are the highest, and the rather convinced them that Lubavitch is the only true form of Judaism. The Rebbe convinced all about all about the that you know they won't admit it to the world because it's bad for business. And as I said, Lubavitch is all about business. But privately, they believe that the the destiny of the Jewish people is that every single Jew has to become a Lubavitcher. That's why they send out stealth agents to Lakewood. That's why they try to convert Satmar. Why? Satmar observe all the mitzvahs, maybe in a better way than Lubavitchers. Lakewood observes them. No, because it has nothing to do with being religious. It has to do with, that, that at least in the in the mindset of some Lubavitcher uh, spiritual leaders, uh, Lubavitch is the destiny of all Jewish people. And it's Listen. not a joke that the Rebbe is Mashiach, because he has to be Mashiach, because it's the destiny of the Jewish people to unite around Chabad. Chabad is it. It's the highest form. It's not only the highest form of Judaism. It's the only form. It's the Listen. only form. We are of any other Jewish group in the world. And we have Musar, and we have modern orthodoxy, and we have all sorts of Hasidic groups. <laughs> I'm not aware of anyone that believes that they are the only legitimate path to, to uh, let me use a Buddhist term, to nirvana, to salvation. I, I don't believe that there's any other group. Maybe Braslov, maybe. I don't know enough about them. But uh, Lubavitch clearly believes that it's the destiny of every single Jew to be Lubavitch or Chassid. Because otherwise, if I can borrow uh, terminology from a different religion, there's, there's no salvation. 
Listen, uh, maybe we should. It's it's so it's so deeply personally upsetting to me. Uh, that is, uh, maybe we should go to history. And okay. uh, why don't you start by telling about your 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 father's hidus with rayats? My father's hidus. Well, my father had two hidus with rayats in the 1930s when he was visiting uh, White Russia, the area of White Russia, um, Western White Russia, that was within the boundaries of the uh, new Polish state after World War One, And um, frankly, that was the only place in the world where there were still some Lubavitcher Hasidim living under freedom. I mean, the bulk of Lubavitchers, and I don't know how many there were, but I imagine in Russia, different categories, there were quite a few left in the Soviet Union. I mean, I would imagine there weren't, there were probably a few thousand Tanimim, but there were plenty of fellow travelers and other people, uh, you know, uh, but they were stuck behind the Iron Curtain. Poland itself, Congress Poland and Galicia had no Lubavitcher Hasidim to speak of. And um, Israel, you can see from the Ryatz's letters and other statements he made, he was not a big fan of the uh, Jerusalem Lubavitcher so-called Lubavitchers in Jerusalem. And the people in America, by and large, except for a few dozen, were not really Lubavitcher Hasidim. They're children of Lubavitcher Hasidim, whose allegiance to Lubavitch basically was by davening the Sahari. Um, so the only place there were still some Lubavitcher Hasidim uh, was um, the area in White Russia, Kulbaka, and that's where the Rebbe was, I believe, in Postov, Kulbaka, places like that. And he stayed in Goboka, I think, or in Postov. And so my father visited him twice, and my father went to Prefetus twice. And my father was very impressed by him. You know, he was, he had uh, sharp eyes, and he was dressed very well, wearing a gold pocket watch. And uh, my father said that he never saw, and my father was a businessman, not a, uh, not a rabbi and not a, a Talmudic scholar. And my father said he never saw a pile of money paper money on a table as high as it, as it was on the Riyadh's desk from uh, from Kvitloch. You know, there are a lot of people going to see him. There, he, as a matter of fact, my father came there once. I don't know which time it was, first time, second time, and he saw a huge line. And so my father, being a uh, businessman, my father went up to the front of the line and uh, took out Polish money and uh, bought himself a, uh, a slot up front. You know, he paid some person. He asked who was interested in selling their their slot to him, and uh, he bought it because he wasn't going to wait uh, seven or eight hours or come back the next day. So uh, I mean, he had uh, clearly the Riots had a following in that area, but I guess there was no town large enough there for him to settle. Uh, and I think the Riots was was not a man who was ready to um, just be what they call in Hebrew, Sameach Bechalko. He wasn't just, he wasn't ready just to say that he was happy with what he had. I think he, his idea of moving to Warsaw from Riga was he wanted to become a, a, what they call in Yiddish, a Welts Rebbe. He wanted to become a world Rebbe, a Rebbe world famous again. You know, in Russia, he was probably an actor. sort of, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He wanted to compete with the Gare Rebbe, to compete with the Alexander Rebbe, to compete with the um, and other big Rebbes in Congress, Poland. 
he he was he wanted to compete with them, and he started Tomchei Tanimim, and he recruited students to Tomchei Tanimim. Uh, most of them, you know, like most of them retained their earlier allegiance to whatever Hasidists they were. Uh, some joined Lubavitch, and, and their children are active, like people like Joseph Weinberg, uh, Reichek, uh, the the whole most of the crowd in the Montreal are Palisha. Um, uh, they're not Russians. Uh, so the Rayats really want to, and, and that's, you know, so I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know what else I can say about my father's relationship with him. I mean, he was there twice, and uh, that was that was it. My father was not a Lubavitcher Hasid. My father came from a family of Lubavitcher Hasidim, but uh, my father personally was not a Hasid of the Rebbe, but, but he all one, he always spoke of uh, the Rayats, uh, even 40, 50 years later, he spoke with a tremendous amount of uh, Derek Eretz towards him and, and honor. And uh... Now, the more and more that I think, I mean, I think I was telling you this, that the more as the last years go by, the more I think of the Rayats and and his son-in-law were not really um there was no great divide between the two of them um i mean the rayats was also his proclamations were very pompous he was also seeking to spread chabad world over and in that world judaism and orthodox jews was in poland three million jews in poland and he started Lubavitcher Yeshivas in places like Chelm, like Lodge, even though there were no Lubavitcher Chassidim in those towns. Um, he, he was seeking to build. He was seeking to build. It obviously was a failure because by the late 1930s, Rashad quit his executive position with Lubavitch and went off to Israel to explore economic opportunities. Uh, so if if the Riyadh's enterprises in Poland were successful, Riyadh, um, Rashad would not have left. Rashad left because he saw there was no future for this in in Poland. Uh, Lubavitch was a small group, so they had a few hundred students in yeshiva, but big deal. The Piasetsner yeshiva and Piasetsner Rebbe is only famous because uh, you know he was an intellectual giant, but you know he's become famous because he was a, a Rebbe in the Warsaw ghetto and his Discourses were later discovered after the war, but the PSS and Yeshiva also had 400 students, and and smaller rebbes had yeshivas with three, four hundred students. I mean, uh, so what? I mean, uh, it, it didn't mean much. I, I asked the great, uh, one of the few surviving Polish rabbis, and he was an official rabbi, not a insurance agent or a stockbroker or a travel agent. He was a rov of a large town of the city of Narol. I asked the Narol rov uh, all the shalom once. Uh, you know, I tried to be uh, cute and show him that I was in touch. And I said, so what was the the Derech Halima, the intellectual way of studying Talmud in uh, in, uh, in your yeshiva? And he looked at me and, and laughed at me and mockingly and said, what are you talking about? What are you talking about intellectual way? People came to my yeshiva and they came to all yeshivas in Poland. In Poland, I'm not talking about Lithuania and white Russia, but in Poland, just because we served three square meals a day and we gave them a bed. And that's why they came. And that's true about the Lubavitcher Yeshiva. And that's, if my memory is 
still working, Barry Garari confirmed that, that um, many of the students in the Bhagavad Yeshivas were there because there were three meals a day, whether they were square meals, I don't know, but, uh, and they had a bed, whether it was the mattress was made of straw or something else, I don't know either. But, uh, you know, uh, so the Rayats was, in his own time, he wanted to do the same thing as, as his son-in-law. You know, bring Chabad to power. Some of his proclamations were very pompous. He also, he also um, refused to affiliate with the Agudas Yisrael, and he refused. He was tried to, you know, create an independent path in Poland for his for his people. You know, uh, not saying all of that. Clearly, Ramash took it to new heights. I mean. Uh, there's no evidence that the Rayats had very much of an interest in recruiting the hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews in Poland who had left Judaism. <laughs> There's no evidence of that. There's no evidence that the Rayats sent out Shluchim to the Bundisten and the Zionisten and the Revisionisten to bring them back to Judaism. No evidence at all. And you know what? There's no evidence that in the Soviet Union he did that between 1918 and 1927. There's no evidence that he tried to convert communists back to Judaism. And if you think I'm crazy, the, the Navardakar, the people from Beis Yosef, the Talmudim of Rabbi Yosef, the Ezel Horvitz, they did try doing that. <laughs> That's the joke. The, the people from Navardak, who, and there were many Navardak yeshivas in communist Russia until 1923-24, did try doing it. They had public debates with the communists, uh, with the Jewish communists. They had, uh, you know, struggles with them and, uh, you know, and trying to convince them that the, the, the derech of, of Torah is the right. But there's no evidence that Joseph Eichnerson did any of that. And I'm not blaming him, by the way. I'm not uh, blaming him. It was a lost cause. Um, that religion had nothing to offer. It had been in power now for since modernity started, let's say 150 years or something. And all all that happened was the Jewish situation in Russia and Poland got worse. It didn't get any better. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you can debate a little maybe, but it didn't get any better substantially. So what were the Fruma going to offer? That uh, we're going to offer Kofel Shmein Nikitsitsis. We're going to offer a break and Gartel. I mean, there's nothing they could offer. And they, you know, the truth is. That's why hundreds of thousands of Jewish young people left. And they continued leaving until right until uh, 1940. I mean, because uh, the only answer to the Jewish issue, if we can call it that, was communism slash socialism of a, uh, uh, a new society. Zionism offered an answer uh, and in its various manifestations, be it revisionism or Zionism, or, uh, and, and to a certain extent, Mizrahi the religious Zionists, because they were playing both cards. I mean, they kept Jewish tradition and they were Zionists. But uh, the Bundists also offered, because they were socialists, they offered dreams of a new society of cooperation between economic classes that would end the uh, anti-Semitism in Poland. But, you know, what did the Fruma offer? I don't know. 
I mean, what did they offer? More of the same. So I think there was a continuity between the Riyats and the Ramash, but um, on the other hand, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, it's worthy of study. It's worthy of study, but the study has to be done without exaggeration. It has to be done just because the Riyats created uh, yeshivas in Poland doesn't necessarily mean that he did exactly what the Ramash did. But, you know, there's certain, certain similarities do exist. Uh, you know, uh, uh, clearly the Riyats was into the Messianic, uh, you know, 19, when he came to America, he got involved in Messianism and the, Riyats, and the Ramash got involved in Messianism too. Um, but all I can just say is if you read the Riyats's, um discourses, uh, the Riyats was a very warm person. Um, the Riyats had a flair for writing, which his son-in-law did not. And he had a flair for a taste of Eastern Europe. I mean, many of the little discourses he writes about what shtetl life was like, whether it was real or fictionalized, it doesn't matter. Actually, if it's fictionalized, it's, it's his greater credit that he was a good writer. Um, you know, they capture Eastern European Jewish life. They capture the shul in the morning, the base medrash with people talking and people uh, hustling and hustle bustle. Like he says, a person asked for a loan and the yid gave him a loan and then they were off to the mikveh and this yid in the corner was saying, till him uh, and he was crying. I mean, boy, he captured a certain thing that very few other writers captured. Um, but his son-in-law uh, laughed because, you know, his son-in-law, we're, we're indicting his son-in-law about various things, but his son-in-law did not know what Eastern European Judaism was like. He never experienced it. He was living in a large industrial town, the way Lubavitch describes it itself, the large industrial city of Dnepropetrovsk in Ukraine. Exactly what my friends in Lubavitch, that's what it was. It wasn't the shtetl. It wasn't the shtetl. It wasn't Klimovich. It wasn't Kalinkovich. It, it was a huge industrial city with Yidin on the foreign as an Alatalenvelt from Galicia, from Lita, from the Ukraine. Yeah, so what did the Rebbe know about traditional Jewish life? Well, he knew more about traditional Jewish life than the American Jews knew, that's for sure. Because after all, the Nevitrovs was in the Ukraine. But, you know, it wasn't exactly like growing up in, uh, even in a Jewish large city like Berdichev. It wasn't like growing up in Berdichev. It wasn't like growing up in small towns like uh, Skvir or Shpola or, or uh, like even until recently, I was reading that um, even until a few years ago, uh, the town of, uh, what is it, where the Slavuta, Slavita in, in Ukraine still had a sheikh and still had a rock. Wow, under the communists until the 1980s, the, the last rock of Slavita, Lieberson, died in, in the 1980s and they're still shaken until a few years ago. It may still be there, who knows? So some of these small towns had an intensive Jewish life. Uh, the Rebbe never experienced that. So how can I have tightness that he didn't talk about Jewish life? He didn't know what we were talking about. He might as well have been born in Alaska. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think of Rayatz as someone who uh, essentially had to recreate the geschäft 
and have to compete with other rabbis, established rabbis in Poland. But in a way, he started this break from Russia. And break is, to in, it, it, it wasn't Likuti Diburim, it wasn't real memories, you know, it was, it wasn't writing there that his whole family uh, fried out. Uh, he, he, he admitted this, uh, you know, he was starting from scratch. And in a way, the Ramash started from scratch. And they recreated the new religion as much as they want to portray Chabad as something that goes back to Russia. It's a new religion. Uh, in important aspects of it, it's it's different from a traditional Jewish religion and from from a from a culture that existed in Russia. I don't know what else they can do, but they 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 try to portray themselves as something as a continuation of what was in Russia. It's not true. It was a new I'll, thing. I'll agree with you. I mean, listen, the Ryats, uh, he came, what, what, who did he come with? He came with his family and a few Hasidim, and he started, uh, you know, uh, he started from scratch, as you say, you know. Uh, and uh, the only thing is where I, I do think that if you read his stuff, he still demanded some sort of intellectual um, purity. Uh, he just wasn't talking about um, running around and, and teaching people Judaism. He was talking about studying Hasidus seriously. He, he, he did talk about these things. Yeah, but, like, but he, it's as a, as a homage to his father, maybe. Because maybe. They, the, at, the Hasid, at, at his time, most of Hasidim still remember remember Rashab and uh, still remember his intellectual elitist approach of Rashab. And he had to pay homage. It, it was Chabad culture at the time, what 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 Ramash had established. And uh, he had to pay uh, tribute to that. And as it, so the, the culture of intellectualism is, was a culture of Ramash, uh, of uh, Rashab. Rayatz was truth. very much very different person from that. He was not an intellectual. Perhaps he was, a, perhaps he was an aspiring writer, but he wasn't an intellectual. And not only that, um, the memories of Tomchit Mimim, uh, what Bensin Dinur writes, about his interactions there with the Rayats, who was a young person who was given Anchole, was given management of Yeshiva, uh, who, yeah, it's when something like this happens, it's always problematic because a person of that background doesn't have a real life, doesn't have a connection to real life. And the way he spoke, the way he spoke, uh, what, what the what Bensin Zinur tells you, the way Rayat spoke to him, he doesn't come in a good light. I always think um, that, uh, you know, I'm always thinking. So let's say in 1951, Rashad would have been chosen Rebbe. 
Uh-huh. You know, what exactly is it that the Rashad would have done? Uh, I mean, you know, what would have been the features of Rashad's leadership model? Um, and it's worth discussing that if we can. Uh, uh, just as to draw a distinction from the model of, of uh, Rabbi Schneerson, uh, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. Okay. I, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, uh, the Rayats in America, um, you know, and it's probably partially because of his uh, illness. The Rayats in America, the first few years, well, he's concentrated on the yeshiva. And uh, I guess he tried starting a few day schools, but, uh, but. And pomposity. There's a tremendous amount of pomposity. Uh, you know, his declarations were pompous, and uh, and go it alone. He was a go it alone person. He didn't join Agudas Yisrael. Didn't join Agudas Harabonim. Uh, he was a go it alone person. So I think that marks in in a little uh, a little messianism. So I don't know what Rashad. You know what? What would the Rashad have done? And in, in, let's say if he had forty or fifty years of leadership, uh, would Rashad have gone off on uh, this outreach campaign? Would he? Um, you know, I don't even think that the outreach in my book, the outreach is not necessarily the problem. The problem is what I've said before: this emphasis on pragmatism, this emphasis on running around. This emphasis, when I had a relative who came from Russia, Olubavitcher, in the late 1960s, and, uh, you know, he came here to where I live, and uh, on Purim, and I uh, was talking to some Olubavitchers, Bacharim, and he said, he said something in Yiddish. He said, a person needs to concentrate on self-improvement. And they laughed at him, and they said, that's not what the Rebbe says. The Rebbe says, we and you should work on other people. And that, to me, captures all that was wrong with Rabbi Schneerson's uh, career. Lubavitch classically was self-improvement. And I, I, you know, I don't see anywhere that the Rayats was against self-improvement, de-emphasized self-improvement. I, I don't know. But, but clearly, Rabbi Schneerson de-emphasized self-improvement. Self-improvement didn't matter anything. People running Lubavitch institutions in the United States, some of them were decent people. Some of them, and may I use this word over our network, some of them were assholes. Some of Lubavitch or Ryatz's representatives were, were what I just said they were. They had no meetups they, because the ends justified the means for them. And same is true to the 10th degree about representatives of Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. He didn't care who these representatives were. He didn't care who they were, as long as they got the job done. And he talked about it. He, the Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson talked about bulldozers. He needs a bulldozer. He was so um, detra detracting in a letter about the Hasidim in Tel Aviv, who were a bunch of Russian Lubavitchers, Gerari, I don't know, and some others. And he laughed at them. He says, they wake up at 10 o'clock, they do nothing, they study Hasidus. I need a bulldozer. Tractoristen, he called them. I need a tractor. I need people who are riding a tractor. 
That's what he needed. And a tractor, a person riding a tractor does not sit and meditate over, over the world, over the world situation, over his place in the world. A person riding a tractor is thinking about getting rid of the weeds and this and that. And the same thing is true with tractoristen, uh, Bitsuisten. He also needed, he used the term Bitsuisten, like from Bitsua. People who can do things, people who can enforce things. Well, you know, th these are terminologies that never have anything to do with Chabad, Tractoristen, Bitsuisten, Machinisten. I mean, th these belong in the, in the dictionary of Stalin in, in the 1930s in the Ukraine. You know, uh, you can get the job done. You can do the 10-year plan. You can get it done. We don't have time to sit and think about uh, Marx, Marx's books. You've got to get the job done. That's what the Rebbe wanted. Well, you know, and, uh, that, I think, is a major distinction between him and, and, and the Rayats. Um, but the Rayats was more... He, the Rayats did lay the groundwork for what went on afterwards. He did lay the groundwork. You know, I'm not going to deny that. I think more and more I think about it, I think there is some truth to that, that he did lay the groundwork for for the, the going at it alone philosophy, the the philosophy of um, trying to spread Lubavitch all over the world. Uh, and Lubavitch had, you know, like, why would why would you want to open up Lubavitch Yeshiva in Warsaw, where you had hundreds of specific groups uh, studying Torah day and night, like the Gerashtibloch in Warsaw. They weren't called yeshivas, they were just shtibloch. Had hundreds of Bokharim and young marriage, hundreds, literally. The description is you had hundreds and there must have been who knows how many Gerashtibloch in Warsaw, and they were filled day and night. Why would you, why would the Lubavitcher ever want to open up his yeshiva in Warsaw? He wanted it because he wanted power. He wanted, uh, you know, and why did he make the huge wedding for his uh, second son-in-law? Why? Because he wanted to show the Polish Jews that the Sudan does. I am here. I'm here. So, um, I don't know. Well, okay. Is there anything else? I just, I, I came across something very funny uh, a few days ago. You know, I, I know you don't care for these sites, and I don't either, but I do look at them because I have very little to do with Lubavitch and flesh and blood. So I look at Colive and other places. Um, on Colive, they were announcing that Hey uh, Shvat, which I think, let's see, Rosh Hashanah was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, was Friday. There would be Thursday night, there would be a Fabrengen in honor of the Babasali's York site. Now, for those of you who don't know, Atev Babasali was a Moroccan uh, Balmofes who lived in Israel, I believe. He died in 19, let me just get this straight, uh, probably 82 or 83. Um, you know, he had a you know, had a large following of Moroccan Jews and, and among some Ashkenazim, you know, as a Balmofes. Um, Maybe some of his children, grandchildren. He had many, he had two wives, and, you know, he had many children, he had many grandchildren. Some of them may have married Lubavitchers. I, I don't know. So there was an announcement that they would have a special York site for bringing for the Babasali. Okay, you know, that that just sort of proves my point, not that it needs proof, 
that there are many Moroccans in Lubavitch today. That Lubavitch is overrun by Spartan. So that's a point of mine that uh, the culture of Lubavitch is no longer Russian. It's no longer, and, and as you said, you didn't go into it, to be, and I don't know anything about it, so it's the reason I didn't go into it because I'm ignorant of all of this. But clearly, Russia has a, a culture of, of, of thinking, a philosophy, of, uh, you know, people are not, uh, they're not simple people. Um, so they're going to have for Brangman for the Babasal. Yeah, at the end of this, at the end, Kolai had said um, something to the effect, uh, I'm not going to be quoted, uh, paraphrasing it, bring your Moroccan costume with you. Which is the Gilbey, the uh, or Gilbey? I don't know how you pronounce it. I'm not Moroccan. Uh, you know, which is the hooded uh, cloak the Babasali wore. I guess the traditional. I mean, Lahabdil Arabs wore it too. So I was thinking, bring your your Moroccan costume. It's fascinating because to me, the costume that Lubavitch wears, the clothing that most Lubavitchers wear on Shabbos, the kapota and their hat and gartel are also only a costume. They don't wear it during the week. A traditional Jewish Jew wears this. I mean, most Babavar Hasidim and Belzer Hasidim wear a similar outfit that they wear on Tuesday that they wear on Shabbos. I mean, it's not as if on Tuesday the average Babavar Hasid is dressed in uh, jeans and uh, a T-shirt. I mean, they, the costume may vary a little bit in terms of material, in terms of, you know, Shabbos, you wear a Bekisha, and, you know, I'm not going to say that. But, you know, the, the average Hasid, I mean, sure, working people dress differently, but the average Hasid is not dressing completely different. It's just a costume. And I noticed it from Davening here with Lubavitchers, that many of them hang up their costume on hangers in the show. So when they leave their home, they're dressed in a shirt and a slacks. And they come to show, they put on their uh, kapata and show. So it's just a costume that's worn, uh, that's worn when you do a religious function. You put on your costume. Just like uh, a Jew walks into a conservative temple, he puts on the talit and the kippah. So for Lubavitch, it's you walk into show, your kapata is hanging, and you put it on. It's become a costume. It's not your authentic dress. It's a costume. And I think that's a good deal of Lubavitch is like that, that these are just cultic things in many ways. And I, I, I'm going to sound like a Fermat for a minute. In many ways, there are halachas that are, that, that are serious halachas that Lubavitch does not care about. I'm not saying that they, they just don't care about it, not concerned about them. On the other hand, there are things that the Rebbe promulgated that they seem to be super concerned about. That are not really, you know, I'll give, you know, I have my own pet peeve, which is Hall of Israel. I mean, Ramosha Feinstein, who Lubavitchers liked to convince others that he was a friend of Lubavitch, he wasn't an enemy. Ramosha Feinstein is a friend of all Jews. He loved all Jews. Uh, Ramosha did so many, uh, through his halachic uh, decisions, he did so many good things for Jews. It's unbelievable. I'm not going to go into it. Uh, so Ramosha loved everyone. Uh, 
But Ramesha ruled uh, clear, as the Rebbe would say, Shohar Agave Lovan, black on white, in his book, in Igris Mesha, that you can drink regular milk. But Lubavitchers are obsessed with Chal Yisrael. And they're not only obsessed, but and they're obsessed with Chal Yisrael in, in the manner that they believe it has to be done, uh, which you know is irrelevant at this point. And there are other things that they're obsessed about. You know, in fact, wearing a tichel for a woman wearing a tichel is much more um, uh, authentic than wearing a shaitel. I mean, most of the Galtzianer, Hungarian, and Polish rabbis were against uh, shaitel. They were against it. They they thought that it was a a uh, aroma. It was a, a trying to trying to um, fool God or fool other Jews that. Uh, you know, these shapes, especially modern shapes, look like real hair. And uh, so you're trying to fool everyone. Ah, you're, you're getting the best of both worlds. You're, you're looking beautiful. And on the other hand, you're, it's not your own here. And the Hungarian and many Rabbanim were against it. And the Rebbe said, no, Dafka woman should wear a shaitel, not a tichel. I understand his logic, you know, but... Um, you know, so Lubavitchers are obsessed with Shaitlach, whereas the rest of the Hasidic world, uh, you know, uh, has a you know mixed feelings about Shaitlach. I mean, you can't, uh, you, you know, you can't stop quote end quote progress. I mean, many women are just want Shaitlach, but uh, most of the Hasidic community besides Lubavitch has mixed feelings about Shaitlach. But but Lubavitch is into them. Um, there are other things too. So the important things in halacha, and I'm not a rabbi, and I'm not a fermat, and I don't really care, but as a, so, a amateur sociologist, it's it's amazing. It's just amazing that there are things, uh, and and then there are things that are not important in halacha that Lubavitchers seem also to, uh, because the Rebbe never spoke about them, they're okay. Computers is one of them. Computers is one of them. I mean, who gave Lubavitchers the uh, the hetter to go wild over computers? I mean, you know, and this I believe the Rabbi Aftson spoke about a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, I don't know which Rabbi Aftson it is. Is it the one who's in Michigan, in Cincinnati? It doesn't really matter. Who who gave Lubavitchers this hetter to be all over a, a, a medium which you get pornography on demand? I don't even know if it's on demand. You got pornography not on demand. Um, so I don't know. It's a strange movement. It's a very strange movement. But a television, because the Rebbe spoke about television, even that's changing, though, I'll admit. I mean, most Lubavitchers uh, probably have televisions. But you don't need a television. What do you need television? You can get, you can get schmutz 100 times dirtier and schmutziger on your computer or whatever these, uh, you know, then you can ever get on the television in your wildest dreams. This is a movement that's a cult. And I know everyone's going to get, oh, he called us a cult. Yes, yes, I called you a cult. It is a cult. It doesn't recognize any Rabbanim besides their late leader. It doesn't recognize Gadol and Yisrael. It still is, won't forgive Rashach criticizing the Rebbe. It's a cult. Was it a cult under Rabbi Joseph Eichnerson? Maybe. I don't think so. 
It certainly was not a cult under Rashad, that's all. It was a strong political party under Rashad and Tsarist Russia, no doubt about it. The Rashad was, a, was a intellectual, as you say, but he was also a powerful political leader. Uh, he, had, he had talents. He clearly was a talented man. And uh, he knew how to control rabbinical conferences. He packed, he packed the conferences with his supporters. He, 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 he was good at it, you know. Um, you know, so I, it wasn't a cult under him, though. And I don't think it was a cult either under the Rayats, too, because the Rayats was, uh, you know, although, as I said, he went at it alone. But, you know, there are documents where he signed together with the Chodot Haim and the Chaim Ozer. And, uh, he, you know, he, he wasn't completely, he didn't lead this cult. Lubavitch today is a cult. And, and, and one of the men, I add that one of the manifestations of a cult that sociologists have not gotten to, and this is my Kiddush, is that a cult in modern times, which means the last 20 years, a cult usually is not led by a cult leader anymore. When the cult leader dies, there is no successor usually. So when this leader of the uh, Hare Krishna people died, he had no successor. Uh, Lahabdil, I'll say Lahabdil. And other cult leaders, when they die, they also have no successors. Because it's it's better for a cult not to have a successor because the successor may actually change certain beliefs of the cult and remove certain cult uh, officials from their jobs. So usually, um, I, I, I would argue this. I mean, I'm not, again, I don't claim to be an expert in cults. I'm not a cult member. Lubavitch um, is like that too. You know, there's no talk of making a new leader. You know, why Why do you need a new leader? I mean, after all, a new leader, let's say, just for argument's sake, if you appointed uh, a Schneerson as leader, any Schneerson, uh, he may actually uh, tell some of the characters around 770 to go home. It's time for you to retire. You may tell Tony Almoni, Rabbi, it's time for you to retire. Another guy he may actually pick out of California and say, you know, I really believe you should become Chabad Shliach in Nicosia in Cyprus. Uh, and another guy in a small town, he says, you know, you are really good at it. I like you. You're an honest man. I think you should become the head of Chabad in greater Philadelphia. Can't take that chance. You can't take that chance to lose Parnosa and to lose power. No new Rebbe for us. Okay. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to hear your last comment. Then. <laughs> My last comment is uh, the new leader important because you want to have a relationship with that leader. It's, uh, it's important because you want to have a person who is your guide whom you bounce ideas ideas from. And uh, it's de deprived. Uh, people are deprived of that experience. But then you take a chance, uh, you take a chance of having a leader like Ramash, who is a, who is a negative force. Um, I see what he has done as a negative force. So you, you're better off without it. 
Well, that's what a person close to me tells me that uh, it's it's for the he agrees with you, uh, uh, my brother. Uh, that it's better that there is no leader. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.